Okay. Luke 8 in your Bibles. Verses 40 to 56. Title of the sermon, A Little Bit of Each of Us. We're currently in the midst of a period of Jesus' ministry defined by great compassion. All of Jesus' ministry was defined by compassion. However, we're in a time where Luke seems to be highlighting in a particular way the tremendous compassion of our Lord as he is also talking about Christ's authority and, and showing us these um, lessons on faith. Compassion finds a, a, a great deal of um, time in these texts. A city harlot comes to Jesus and washes his feet with her tears. He tells her that her sins have been forgiven and to go in peace. Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee to Gadara and he heals a man tormented by demons. Today, Jesus is going to return from that trip to Gadara. They asked him to leave. He does so. And he comes back likely, presumably, to Capernaum. And we read in verse 40. And it came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. What an interesting contrast. The people of Gadara who said, who were afraid and said, please leave our coasts to the people in Capernaum who once again, as they have several times, gladly received him. And indeed, they were all waiting for him. We don't exactly know why it was that Jesus went over to Gadara. Maybe it was simply for the one man, the man greatly tormented by legion. Uh, but what we do know is that they return, is that when they returned, there was gladness at his return. You notice in our King James Bibles, gladly is in italics. This means the word is a supplied word by the translators, typically for the sake of comprehension. It's not one that was actually in the Greek text underlying the version. The word itself is not in the original. In this case, we might wonder why the translators actually italicized it, because the word received there that we have is um, a word which means to receive favorably, but perhaps they thought, well, there's just not quite enough in that word to to allow gladly to go without being italicized. The flavor of the word, however, leans toward that idea. The idea not just to receive, but to welcome. It's the difference between when you open the door, uh, somebody rings the doorbell and you open it and it's some guy trying to tell you something and you receive him, you open the door, but you're not really interested in him being there. And when you invite someone over to your house and they ring the doorbell and you gladly receive them, you open the door and say, hey, come on in. It's great to have you here. That, that's a little bit of the difference with this word here. They were waiting for him and when he showed up, they were very happy to see him. Continuing in verse 41, the text tells us, and behold, there came a man named Jairus and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. So a man comes. Jesus gets onto shore, presumably there in Capernaum, and a man comes up to him named Jairus. And he was a ruler in the synagogue, the text tells us, a spiritual leader in the area. He would have been a man who uh, was very active in the, the religious um, 
observance of the area. And he makes a very public request here. And this is somewhat interesting, considering that he was a, a leader in the synagogue. And, and this area is quite friendly to Jesus, so maybe not quite as surprising as if he had been in a less friendly area to him and a ruler of the synagogue had received him. However, by making such an exceedingly public request of Jesus, what he is doing here is showing without question his Faith and revealing that Jesus, um, also revealing that Jesus did not just minister to the poor and rejected, but he ministered to anybody who had, who had true faith in him. Now we're going to see in two accounts, both the account with Jairus and then the account with the woman with the issue of blood, which we'll talk about this evening, just how much Jesus responded to the public nature of the confession of their faith. Jesus here is beseeched by Jairus. And the man falls down at his feet, showing the complete humility by which Jairus is coming to Jesus. And the idea here is this. Jairus is is asking him to come to his house, and whatever is troubling him, he has no plan B. He has no other hope. He's falling at Jesus' feet, requesting something that only Jesus can do for him. And he asks Jesus, please come to my house. And we find out the reason in verse 42. For he had only one daughter, excuse me, one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. The man has one daughter, no doubt precious to him, 12 years of age, and she was on her deathbed. We don't read about why. We don't know what the illness was, or the issue, or the malady, or the maybe injury. In the book of Luke, really, this is all we read about Jairus' request. In Matthew 9.18, one of the parallel passages to this one, we find that Jairus asked Jesus to come and lay his hands upon her, and she shall live, he says with confidence. Please come to my house, lay your hands upon her, and she shall live. This man believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. And so Jesus begins to go. The man falls down, he's humble, he believes, he confesses it, it's confessed openly, He begins to go. But there's a problem. And that problem is that there were so many people around Jesus. He'd just gotten back from Gadara. People are thronging him. The crowd was very large. And Jesus was completely hindered in the speed with which he could get to Jairus' house. Every moment of time was a moment closer to this little girl's death. But the crowd was thronging and the process was slow. You might perhaps be able to comprehend this. Put yourself a little bit into the shoes of Jairus here. You might imagine his frustration. His daughter is dying and you fully believe that Jesus can save her. That Jesus can keep her from dying. And you say, please come. And Jesus, amazingly, is, is, is actually, he's listening to you. He's coming. He says, I will come. And so here he comes, and there are people. There are so many people that he just, he's, he's hindered in being able to come quickly. Many among us know what it's like to have a sick child, but few among us, by God's grace, know what it is to watch our child die. But we might, however, understand through our worst nightmares the feelings in the heart of this man, not only for his daughter's sake, but to know that the one who can cure him is right here, but these people are blocking his efforts. Get out of the way, you might call. Look, have you no compassion? Have you no heart? You can see him after he heals my daughter. Just let him get to my daughter. And then after that, throng him. 
but you know how crowds are. A few might listen, but certainly not enough to care and not enough to change the circumstance. Crowds are big. They don't really heed very well. And as we follow Jesus' journey to the house of Jairus, our attention is diverted in verse 43 to someone else, to one among this crowd, a woman. Interesting. In Luke 7, we meet a harlot woman who falls down at Jesus' feet and washes them with her tears. In Luke 8, we meet a crowd of women, one of whom being Mary Magdalene. And this crowd of women were said to be women who helped Jesus, who supported him, who ministered to him of their substance. And then we find now this woman who has an issue of blood, verse 43. And a woman having an issue of blood 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. And we'll pick up there in just a moment. This woman had an issue of blood for 12 years. The concept of an issue of blood is a polite, culturally acceptable way of describing an issue which was very private. It was an issue that would be exclusively a woman problem and which had caused her no end of trouble. A woman in her cycle would be unclean ceremonially. But it was certainly more severe than just being bidden not to enter the temple. So she would be unclean because she was in her cycle. But it's not just that you can't enter the temple if you are in your cycle as a woman. To understand this better, we go to the command. And the command is found in Luke, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 15. We'll read verses 19 through 27. The Bible says this. And if a woman have an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days. And whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever toucheth her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. And whosoever toucheth anything that she sat upon shall, be, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be unclean until the even. And if it be on her bed or on anything whereon she sitteth, when, she touch, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until the even. And if any man lie with her at all, and her flowers be upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and all the bed whereon he lieth shall be unclean. And if a woman have an issue of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, so more than seven days, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. Every bed whereon she lieth all the days of her issue shall be unto her as the bed of her separation. And whatsoever she sitteth upon shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her separation. And whosoever toucheth those things shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the even. We read this and you can perhaps understand just how big of a deal this is. When a woman has an issue of blood, her separation is for seven days. This separation would be total. To touch her would mean that you become unclean. To touch the things that she sat on, her bed, those things, you become unclean. And verse 15 says that if the issue of blood run beyond the seven days of her separation, then she would continue to be unclean until that issue was passed. 
and all of the expectations of separation would continue as well until the uncleanness was passed. Anyone who touched her would be unclean. Anyone who touched anything that she was associated with would be unclean. Now it's important to understand that the point of this law was not under any circumstances to punish a woman like this who had been bleeding for 12 years to punish a woman who had a health problem. The point was if that the woman, when her cycle started, she would be unclean for seven days. And if the time went past seven days, then she would still be unclean until it was over. And then she would be clean. But because of this, the extremely precise interpretation of the law that was found in Israel at this time, there is no doubt that this woman, for the last 12 years of her life, had lived in perpetual uncleanness. What does that mean? That means that for the last 12 years of her life, most likely, she had been completely deprived of human interaction, of human contact. Because if someone touched her, they would be unclean until the evening. Now, there may be family or friends that would be willing to go through that, do that for her. But certainly if she was a married woman, sharing the bed with her, that, that wouldn't work. Uncleanness. It's quite possible that this woman had been deprived of physical contact and by and large of human interaction for 12 years. Nobody touched her things. They become unclean. She had spent all her living, verse 43 tells us, trying to fix her problem and nothing worked. There was nothing that any of the physicians could do for her. She had tried everything in the world to be delivered from the despair of her circumstances and it was hopeless. And take special note of how long she had been deprived. Did you notice that? Twelve years. Where have we read that number before? About the same time Jairus' daughter was being born, this woman's issue began. Jairus' daughter was twelve years old. This woman had had an issue of blood for twelve years. For 12 years, this man, Jairus, had enjoyed his daughter and now she was on her deathbed. For 12 years, this woman had been in absolute despair, unable to have a human, a, a functioning human relationship. And now we come to this point where a 12-year-old girl is dying and a woman has been effectively dead to society for 12 years. Verse 44, this woman, the Bible says, came behind him and touched the border of his garment and immediately her issue of blood staunched. That's all we read in Luke. In Matthew 9.21, we describe a little bit more of what she was thinking here. Matthew 9.21, the Bible says, for she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. She was convinced on faith that if she could but touch his garment, she would be healed. Two thoughts here. First, consider the similarity of mind between Jairus at this moment and the woman with the issue of blood at this moment. Both were with, they, they tried everything. They were without material or physical hope of deliverance. This man's daughter, she was going to die. 
This woman, she spent all of her substance trying to be healed. They were both hopeless. Abject despair. Both identified Jesus as their solution. Both besought him in faith. Both stepped out in faith. Jairus falling down at his feet and saying, I know you can do this. The woman saying, if I could but touch his garment, I shall be made whole. Second, consider just how significant, particularly this woman's solution was in Christ. I mentioned already, in all likelihood, this woman had not had any likely not had any significant human contact in 12 years. She sees Jesus coming. He is surrounded by people. People everywhere. This is the exact kind of scenario where she should step back and not get anywhere near, right? I am unclean. People are everywhere. This is not a scenario where she runs headlong into that crowd. She is unclean. Everybody she touches is made unclean. Everybody in that crowd that touches her is made unclean. But instead of saying, I, I, there's no solution here. She steps out to touch this man's garment. And she does. And our expectation would be, right? This is an unclean woman. She touches Jesus. Jesus becomes unclean. That's how this works, right? But instead, she touches Jesus and she becomes clean. Immediately, the Bible tells us her issue of blood was staunched. That word staunch, in its verbal form, means to stop the flow of blood. We're far more familiar with the word as an adjective. as uh, It's not pronounced staunch as much as staunch. And we're more familiar with it as in its adjective form. It means to be firm or to be strong. I could say, I am a staunch believer in fill in the blank, right? I'm a staunch believer in the death penalty. I'm a staunch believer in uh, personal property. I'm a staunch believer in Austrian school of economics. Whatever you want to say, to be a staunch believer means you're firm in your belief on something. It's actually the same word. It's just staunch instead of staunch. And it means specifically to restrict blood flow or to stop blood flow. And this is what the text is telling us, that immediately she touched his garment and immediately the blood flowing stopped. She was healed. She was cleansed. Verse 45. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, uh, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee. And sayest thou who touched me? Um, master, being very respectful, here's the thing. <laughs> there are people all around you. Um, what do you mean who touched you? Probably everybody touched you. But this was different. Jesus knew it and one other person knew it. Jesus knew it and that woman knew it. Verse 46, and Jesus said, somebody hath touched me for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. Jesus perceived, he says, that virtue has gone out of him. That word literally being strength, power, ability. My power has just been used. Now, this does not imply that Jesus had like a power tank, 
that uh, it, it went down a little bit. And he's like, uh-oh, you know, somebody used my power without my permission. It's not like when somebody taps into someone else's cable line, you know. It, it's not like that. It's not saying that he had a power tank. This does not imply that he had somehow been drained and that he uh, needed now to refill his powers. Those ideas missed the point. He wasn't saying that. All he was saying is, someone just touched me and they were healed and I know it and I want to know who. Just like Jairus, who verbally got down on his knees and said, Lord, I know you can do this. He wanted this person to verbally say, yes, I have faith in him. He wanted that confession. Now the whole point of the way this woman went about being healed is that she really didn't want anyone to know, right? She didn't fall down at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, I have this problem, please heal me. She simply said, I'm going to touch his garment and I'm going to be made whole. But instead of being made, instead of Jesus being made unclean, she was made clean, she was made whole, and Jesus wants her to say something. Jesus knew who it was, right? He's God. But he wanted her to speak up. This is a part of faith. We're not going to talk about that uh, in in, in full this evening because we're not going to have enough time. But this is a part of faith. A part of faith is confession. Part of faith is not being ashamed. That's what baptism is about. That's the concept there is that I'm making a public profession of my faith because faith that is unwilling to make a public profession is not faith. Verse 47. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. This woman knows that Jesus knows, so she comes, she's trembling, she falls down. This is not something she's comfortable with. This is not something that she wanted to do, but she's going to do it. Because this needs to be said. She tells them, this is what happened. Before all the people, she said, I had this issue of blood, I had it for 12 years, I've been unclean for 12 years, and now I am healed. She was not ashamed, indeed how could she be? She had just been healed. She had just been saved from hopelessness and despair. What could she do but make a public testimony of Christ's power and His goodness? And there's little doubt that this is what Christ wanted. As we mentioned, a public testimony is essential as evidence of belief. Verse 48, And He said unto her, I love this, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. He looks at her with that compassion and mercy that we're talking about. Be of good comfort, he says. Your faith has made you whole. And just as he told the harlot in Luke 7, he tells her, go in peace. You came with sorrow and despair and hopelessness. And now you can leave in peace because you have been made whole. It's nothing that she did. It's nothing she could do. It's something that she believed. Her faith made her whole. Her faith is not a work. Her faith made her whole. Not that she touched his garment. Her faith made her whole. And it was rewarded with healing and with peace. And for all we know, this is all that we hear from the woman. Who knows, maybe she's one of the women that we come across later in one way or another. But as far as we know, this is all we hear about this woman in the scriptures. 
She came in hopeless despair. She left in healing and peace. And now we continue with Jairus' daughter in verse 49. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. So Jesus is speaking to this woman, and someone comes from Jairus' house. We don't know how far away it was at this point, but says, You don't need to trouble the master anymore. He doesn't need to come. It's too late now. Your daughter has died. More fear, more despair, more hopelessness. It's over now. Jesus, however, says this in verse 50. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole. Jesus references a contradiction. He references two things that don't stand together. Fear and faith. Fear and belief. They really don't have a place where they function together. He says, fear not, only believe. He hearkens back to the message he told John the Baptist. Blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Don't be offended in me, Jesus once asked. And now Jesus implores, don't be afraid. Believe only. If you will but replace your fear with faith, it will be rewarded. Verse 51. And when he came to the house, he suffered no man to go in save Peter and James and John and the father and mother of the maiden. So Jesus comes to the house and he says, nobody else come in, just Peter, James and John, mom and dad. The three men, Peter, James and John, we know to be Jesus's inner circle. This would not be the only time that Peter, James and John have the privilege of doing something with Jesus. They would be the three with Jesus at his transfiguration. They were the three men that were closest to him. They were the three that would go farthest in with him at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John. So they go in, and they go in, of course, with the father and the mother as well. Meanwhile, the mourners have already begun their mourning. Verse 52. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, that would be Jesus, weep not, she is not dead. But sleepeth. So the process of mourning in Israel was a very public affair. In the United States, it's not that way, right? Mourning tends to be a somewhat private affair. We have our funeral, but, um, and the funeral is something where you invite friends and loved ones and such, and, and there, there, there can be tears and, and there can be mourning. But as a whole, Americans tend to do the majority of their mourning. Western, Western civilization tends to do the majority of our mourning in Private. Uh, however, in Israel, uh, to, it was it was very common. It was expected to publicly bewail the loss of a loved one. In fact, they had professional mourners that you could hire to be a part of that mourning process, where they would wail and weep and cry in, uh, for the the loss of a loved one. In this case, however, it would likely be the members of the household who were bewailing her. And Jesus speaks to them, and he says. Don't weep. There's no reason to weep. She is not dead. She is asleep. Verse 53. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Look, she is dead. We'll talk about why Jesus said she was asleep in just a few moments. She was dead. And the people know that she's dead. She is no longer breathing. She no longer has a pulse. They are mourning because they have verified that she's dead. So then what is Jesus saying here. There are those who use Jesus' words to espouse what's called soul sleep. 
The idea of soul sleep is that when a person dies, his spirit remains with his body until the resurrection. So when a person dies, he goes, not just his body, but his soul, his spirit, they all go to sleep. And you die, and then when you, it's like when you wake up from a dream, you're in heaven, but it may have been thousands of years that passed. We do not agree with this idea. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When Jesus is hanging on, a, on the cross and the thief on the cross says, Lord, remember me in Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to that man, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. This day you're going somewhere. Your body will die, but you're, you will not stay with it. You will be with me in paradise. These things cannot both be true. You cannot go to sleep until the resurrection and at the same time be with Jesus in paradise. They're mutually exclusive ideas. And we'll even see from this passage, this passage itself, one of the most clear passages that the proponents of soul sleep uses contradicts the concept of soul sleep. We'll talk about it in just a minute. So when we come to an interpretive conflict, we should always allow the, the clear element of the scriptures to interpret the unclear element. Always use that which is more clear and direct to interpret that which is more ambiguous, that which is more unsure, that which is less clear, that which doesn't uh, seem consistent. There are several other ways that we can understand Jesus' words that the girl is not dead but sleeping other than to say that she is in a process of soul sleep. But there really are not any other reasonable ways to understand Jesus saying, thou shalt be with me today in paradise, right? It's pretty clear. So we need to use the clear one to interpret the unclear one and understand he's not saying that her soul, her spirit is asleep with the body. So what is Jesus then saying here? Well, simply put, Jesus was attempting to reorient the understanding of death. And Jesus does this, right? He says things sometimes that are shocking. And he almost uses a little bit of that shock value to help jar people out of their preconceived notions and get them to think in a little bit of a different way. So first, Jesus wants them to reevaluate death in relation to man. Humans tend to see death as a very final thing, don't we? Death is a final thing. The ultimate end. Jesus is reminding them, and they are Jews, so they understand the concept of the resurrection, but Jesus was reminding them that death is not an end. It is simply a passing from one existence to another, from the physical to the spiritual. Death is just another step along the journey. And so Jesus is reminding them of that. But there's also an important lesson here of death as it relates to God. So death as it relates to man, we need to remember that death is not the end. Death as it relates to God, that death has no power over God. Much to the contrary, God is sovereign over death. And this is the point. This young lady may be dead, but she has not ceased to exist. This young lady may be dead... But what is death to God? Verse 54. And he put them all out. They laugh him to scorn. He says, get out of here. So he puts them all out, closes the door. And the Bible says, and he took her by the hand and called saying, maid, arise. Jesus takes this dead girl, grabs her hand, says, maid, little girl, young lady, get up. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. It's an expectation. 
When Jesus told the winds and the waves, peace be still, they stopped. When Jesus said, cast your net, and he told those fish, get into the net, the fish got into the net. When Jesus said to the demon, get out of that man, the demon got out of that man. And when Jesus says to the dead woman, get on your feet, the dead woman gets on her feet. That's the authority of Jesus. Verse 55. And her spirit woke up. No. Her spirit came again. That doesn't sound like soul sleep, does it? It left and it came again. And she arose straightway. And he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Her spirit came again into her because it was gone. And it came again. It was with the Lord. And now it's back. And she immediately gets up. And Jesus then instructs them to feed the poor hungry girl. Her parents were astonished. And he charged them, tell no man. We see this from time to time. We've talked about it before. Jesus calls upon the beneficiary of great miracles to remain silent about that miracle. Theories abound as to why this might be. When Jesus tells somebody who had a demon cast out, tell no man, uh, it makes a little more sense. Because that person was once demonically possessed and their testimony might actually mar the ministry of Jesus Christ. In the case of others... It was perhaps to emphasize the point that Jesus' ministry was not actually about his miraculous power over the externals of life. Really, Jesus' ministry is not about healing a woman uh, of an issue of blood or about uh, raising someone from the dead or ceasing the winds and the waves. Uh, His miraculous power over the inner man is the point, right? His miraculous power to make you whole, to give you peace, to redeem you unto eternal life, and then change you from the inside out. That's really what Jesus' ministry was about. We could sit in application for another hour with all that we could talk about, but we won't. I'd like to hit just a few highlights as we apply. Actually, we've got a good amount of time tonight. Point number one. Consider the ministry of Christ the Savior of all who will receive Him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we call a whosoever will gospel. It's not the gospel for a few. It's not the gospel for the privileged. It's the gospel for all of mankind. We considered just a couple of weeks ago the fact that women seemed to flock to Jesus because in Him they found worth. Women were not just second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And the same can be said of every nationality and ethnicity and economic status and any other potential division. The eyes of God see only two types of people. Those who believe and those who don't. This is the only standard by which a man is judged. The standard of do you believe? True faith. We are all sinners under God. We have all fallen short of His glory. But as many as received Him, John 1.12 tells us, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name. Consider the ministry of Christ, the Savior of all who will receive Him. He doesn't reject Jairus because Jairus is a rich ruler or a leader in the synagogue. He doesn't reject the harlot because if he knew what kind of manner of 
woman she was, he would have nothing to do with her. He doesn't reject the woman with the issue of blood because she is unclean. He doesn't reject to help the child because it's just a kid. He's ministering to anyone, everyone. To whosoever will may come gospel, but as many as received him. Point two. Consider the character of redemption. God's solution to despair. In this passage, we see two people in despair. The world as they knew it had failed them. One was watching powerless to help as his 12-year-old little girl lay dying. One was living powerless against a disease that had kept her isolated from human interaction for that same span of 12 years. Two people in despair, one solution found in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the character of Christ, is it not? This is the character of the gospel. This is the character of the redemptive message that Christ is God's solution to hopelessness. Even as we consider our message this morning in Ecclesiastes, men scour the world trying to find that thing that will satisfy, looking for that next step. Follow your heart. Do what you believe is right. If only I had. And they do that because they know little else. Their search brings them at best to live only in the moment, enjoying what is in front of them but not able to truly Find satisfaction. At worst, they are brought to despair and hopelessness. We'll talk about that in Ecclesiastes 2 next week. The genius and abilities of man fail desperately. They fall desperately short of solutions for man's true problems and needs. One of my favorite words in all of the Bible is actually a conjunction. The word but. B-U-T. Throughout the epistles, we find the writer speaking of the natural state of man, his problems and his needs, of his sin and his hopelessness, only then to read that little conjunction, but, followed by the great things that God has done for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, Paul writes, Among whom also we all had our conversation, our deportment, our lifestyle, in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together in Christ, with Christ, excuse me, by grace ye are saved. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5.11, And such were some of you, and he had just described a list of sinful traits, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians 5.8 For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And this is the character of redemption. On the day that Jairus fell down at Jesus' feet, he had tried everything materially. He was in despair. But God 
was there. This woman had an issue of blood. She had spent all of her living trying to find redemption, trying to find healing, trying to find hope, and she was without hope. But God was there. But God, through Christ, replaced their fear with peace. But God, through Christ, did for them what none else could do. Did for them what nothing else could do. And this is the nature of redemption. The physical realities of redemption, as seen through the healing of the woman, the raising of Jairus' daughter, serve only to show us the power by which our eternal spirits can be redeemed from the power of sin, from the enslavement of sin, from the darkness of our own hearts, from the eternal penalty of hell for our rebellion, from the eternal separation of God unto Redemption through Christ. That's the character of redemption. God's solution to despair. Point three. Consider consider the nature of faith as contrasted with fear. Jesus said earlier in Luke 8, as the disciples were terrified in the midst of a great storm in the Sea of Galilee, Where is your faith? He then tells Jairus and those among him in verse 50, Fear not, only believe. And so we find that the fears which life so regularly places within our hearts are little more than attempts by the enemy to strip from us our peace. From the contentment of who and what we know God to be and who and what we are in Christ. Let us never forget that the nature of faith is contrasted with fear. That where there is great faith, fear has no room in our hearts. Where is your faith, Jesus asked. Fear not, only believe. Because fear and faith contrast, contradict. Where where one resides, the other indeed cannot. Consider also death. That the ultimate foe has been defeated. The greatest passage on the defeat of death in the scriptures is got to be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the resurrection passage. We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. And in verses 54 to 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is quoting some Old Testament concepts here. He says that this is something that has been written. We find one of those concepts in Isaiah 25, 8, where the Bible says, He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of His people shall He take away from off all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. 
Isaiah looked toward the day, not just where death is swallowed up in victory, but where every tear is wiped away. Jesus spoke to them and he said, weep not for she is just sleeping. Don't be sad. Wipe those tears from your eyes. Death is swallowed up in victory. For the Lord hath spoken it. The second is found in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. God tells Israel, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from my eyes. I'm not turning away from this one. Death, you are doomed. Death is doomed. The point is this. Death has already been defeated. Man's ultimate foe, the one thing that is absolutely certain in life, has no power over one who has accepted Christ as his Savior. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The power of Satan, whom Hebrews 2 verse 14 states, wields the power of death, has been Broken. The raising to life of Jairus' daughter, the raising to life of the son of the widow of Nain, soon to be the raising to life of Lazarus, and then eventually the raising to life of himself, serve only to demonstrate the power of our Savior to do for us what he said he could do, to break the chains of the greatest foe man has faced, and to give us eternal life. With our Lord. Death need no longer cause us to fear or to mourn or to fail in our courage, for our Savior has conquered death not only for Himself, but also for us. In this passage, there is perhaps a little bit of each of us to be seen, a little bit of what we are or a little bit of what we once were. Despair because of where we are in life. Despair because of what's coming. Hopelessness, a longing, fear. Desperate. No end in sight. Then came Jesus. And we fell down at his feet. And we confessed him to be our Savior. And as we confessed him to be our savior, he took the guilt and he took the fear and he took death and he took sin and he lifted it off of us and he cast it into the sea and he put in its place peace, contentment, hope, joy, healing, forgiveness, love, patience. That's what Christ does, given to all who will receive him. Redemption through his blood, that we would no longer fear, that we would no longer weep, because fear has been replaced with faith, because sorrow has been replaced with rejoicing. How are you doing tonight? Is that you? Perhaps you're a believer. But you've allowed some of that fear to creep back in.
Perhaps you're a believer, but that contentment and that joy is missing. Perhaps you're a believer, but you've allowed that life, that life that you once lived, that, that hopelessness and despair, that fear, that discontentment, that longing, that need, you've allowed that to find its way back in. But you, you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. God has redeemed you. If you've been redeemed by His name, then you're not supposed to live that way. You don't need to live that way. Perhaps you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You're like that woman who is living in an issue that there's nothing she can do anything about. And if you will but step out in faith, reach out to Christ, you can be healed. A little bit of each of us, perhaps in our sermon this evening. I don't know what part of it might be you, what part of it might have been you, but thank God it need be us no longer. For indeed, Christ has redeemed us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the redemption found through your Son. As we study of Jairus, as we study of this woman, may our hearts be filled with the remembrance of our redemption. May it be to us the delight and the joy that indeed causes us to cry out, to publicly confess you to be our Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I do something extremely unconventional? May I give you a little more? As I was praying, I feel like I need to go one more direction. I want to talk just a little bit more about this concept of confession. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we read this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I want to talk about that for just a few moments. This is where I was going to go perhaps next week, but I'd like to just go there because we've got a little bit of extra time this evening. You know, there's a lot of debate about uh, out there about what it takes to be saved. And there's several words that float around that are divisive. Uh, the words that we have are belief, confession with your mouth and repentance. And those words float around and people will fight and people will argue and people will say, well, if you don't have this and if you don't have that, and we are all, uh, in, unless you are out of balance, and the danger is that one these places can take us out of balance one way or another, then we're all talking about the same thing. You have those people that are belief alone, and we would, by and large, put ourselves kind of there in a manner of speaking. The word that I am most comfortable with using on any occasion to talk about salvation is belief. It's what we will call, and now we get to do our math lesson, the least 
common denominator. And what I mean by that is this. If you have two fractions, if you're going to add those fractions, you want them to have the same denominator. So you have in a fraction a numerator. I had all these great slides for this. Um, a numerator and a denominator, right? The numerator, the number on top of the fraction is the number of pieces, of equal pieces of the whole that you have. The denominator on the bottom of the fraction is the number of equal pieces that make up the whole. So if I have a pizza and I have eight slices of pizza at the bottom of that pizza, uh, at the bottom of that fraction, the denominator is going to have an eight because I have eight equal slices. The top number is going to be the number that I actually have left, or perhaps let's say that I've eaten. So if I've eaten one of those pieces, then I have eaten one out of eight of those pieces. I've eaten one eighth. We have a fraction. If I want to get a whole pizza, then I need to add one-eighth and seven-eighths together, and that gives me eight-eighths, which gives me one whole pizza. That's a basic fractions lesson, right? The least common denominator is the, which means that when I'm adding those two fractions, the denominator is the same. I'm dealing with the same number of equal parts, so I can add those two together. Now imagine if I have one pizza that has eight slices and I have another pizza that is cut into 16 slices. Well, that's unfortunate because no one's just going to eat one sixteenth of a pizza, right? That's ridiculous. But you have a pizza for whatever reason that is cut into 16 slices. Now you have one denominator that has an eight and you have another denominator that has a 16. I need to get those two. If I want to start adding those two together, so I have one pizza that has three eighths left and I have another pizza that has five sixteenths left, I need to get the denominators the same. I need to take that that pizza with eight and I need to cut it into sixteen slices so that both pizzas have sixteen slices so that now I can add them together. And three eighths then becomes what? Thank you. Six sixteenths, right? So now we have six sixteenths and we have five sixteenths and we can add them together and we now have eleven sixteenths of a pizza left. And I can do that once I've cut it up. I figure if we're going to do a math lesson, we might as well be interactive here for a moment. And, and, and so that's the least common denominator idea. You boil the denominator down to its least number to the lowest number possible that, th- that, that you can in order to make it work. The least common denominator of salvation. If you go to any salvation passage, if you go to any passage where Jesus is healing, where people are receiving him, the word that you come to is belief. Belief. That's the least common denominator. Now, that gets into what are the facets of belief. What are the facets of belief? The concept of repentance The concept of repentance is defined in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That I am rejecting anything and everything else that I am trusting in in order to bring me to a place of faith in Christ. You cannot have full faith in Christ if you're trusting in something else too. Right? If I am going to get into a 
to get onto a plane in order to fly somewhere, and I'm afraid of that plane, so I only put one half of myself in the plane, that doesn't work, right? The plane can't take off with only half of me in there. In Noah's day, when God was going to judge the earth, Noah couldn't say, okay, God, I get it, build a boat and such. And when God says, get into the boat, Noah says, well, I don't know that I trust you, so I'm only going to put half of me in that boat. And God closes the door, and only half of him is in there, and Noah isn't saved. Right? Noah's not alive. Because only half of him is in the boat. You can't have it both ways. You can't have, be trusting in, in any sort of dead works, and have faith toward God. So if repentance from dead works... If, if, if faith toward God is the standard, then you have to repent of your dead works. You have to turn away from anything and everything that you're trusting in to get yourself to heaven. You have to tr- you, you, you can't be trusting man. You can't be trusting yourself. You can't be trusting your goodness. You can't be trusting church. You can't be trusting baptism. You can't be trusting money. You can't be trusting morality. You can't be trusting your parents or your pastor. None of that works. You have to reject all of that and trust. Put your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Put all your eggs in his basket. Confession with your mouth. That's what we've seen in this passage tonight, right? We've seen two people and Jesus heard them. Jairus gets down on his knees and he says, you are the only thing that can help me. He is publicly stating he believes that in Jesus' power, everyone is there. He's the leader of the synagogue. Jesus has done some things which many Jews are not comfortable with. And here's a leader of the synagogue on his knees saying, Jesus, you are You are one who can do this for me. Public confession. Jesus wanted it. The woman touches him. Who touched me? He wants to hear her say, I touched you. He wants to hear it. Now, was it her confession explicitly that saved her? It was not. Her faith is what saved her. Was it his confession That saved his daughter? It was not. It was his faith that saved his daughter. But is it, is it absolutely natural so that we could say it will happen? That if a person has accepted Jesus Christ as their savior, then they will unashamedly confess him with their mouths? Absolutely. And this is baptism. This is a part of that, isn't it? Baptism is not the only way we can, we, we openly publicly profess our faith, but it is The way, as we see in the scriptures, whereby everybody, it's the standard, it's kind of that set standard whereby a man confesses his faith. You get baptized. That's what Jesus told us to do. And that's why we do that here. That's why we believe it, because that's what the scriptures show. And this is a way for us to do what faith naturally compels us to do, which is to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus. And then to believe in our hearts that God has saved him from the dead. We confess it. We proclaim it. We will not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Indeed, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so when we talk about salvation, if we boil it down to the least common denominator, the word that we would use would be belief. But you can't have belief, true belief, without repenting from dead works. You will not have true belief if it doesn't accompany public confession, a willingness to profess your faith. These are not mutually exclusive ideas, nor are they in competition with one another. Now, we all understand faith the way we received it. 
In other words, you understand your salvation. The only way you can truly understand salvation is by the way you receive that salvation, right? I, I can hear stories of how other people received and they're very different from mine. And it begins to give me a better understanding of how salvation works and the very many uh, ways that people have come to a faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus Christ alone is the answer. Jesus Christ alone is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said in John fourteen six. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So we know Jesus is the way. But we need to understand that we are all going to understand our salvation slightly differently. And I'm simply saying this because I've been troubled. I've been troubled by, even among our, our, our uh, not, not in our church necessarily, but even among uh, the fellowship of churches that we would associate with in this area, there is so much debate over the terminology that we use when we talk salvation. And yes, there are people on the fringes, and we need to be careful there, that take repentance to a degree that they say you have to turn from your sin before, you have to turn from all sin before you can be saved. Of course, that's lordship salvation, and we're not there. To say that I can cast off my sin before Christ has saved me is not the case, right? I come to Christ. I, I'm not turning from sin to God when I get saved. I'm turning to God, and the sin then falls away. And then there are those on the other end who say, well, if you only say belief, then I'm going to throw... And, and there are those who are what we would call easy believism folks, right? And they say belief alone and, and they define belief as, well, they said a prayer or they said they believe and that's enough. And there's no fruit. There's no confession. There's no willingness to changed at all. There's no conviction. There, there's nothing. And yes, they're both out there. They are. And so we need to be careful. But at the same time, we need to recognize that the interplay of repentance and confession and belief don't have to cause contention. They really don't. We know what salvation is. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. For it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We know what salvation is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, to certain people that you give the gospel to, they need to hear more about repentance. To certain people that you give the gospel to, they need to hear more about confession. To certain people that you give the gospel to, they need one aspect or another. But that doesn't make them exclusive. It's the same work. It's saving faith. It is me putting all of my eggs in Christ's basket. It is me getting out of the stands and getting onto the field and following Christ. It is me taking up my cross and dying with Him 
I die daily, Paul said, in following Christ. We know what it is. And let's allow that simplicity that is in Christ to pervade. Let's keep an eye on the least common denominator. Let's understand how these other parts relate. And then let's be sure that we're giving a clear gospel presentation, that we are clearly articulating it to our children, that we're clearly articulating it in our own minds, that we're not making it more than it is, and we're not making it less than it is. And if we have clarity there, not only will it bring to us a better ability to articulate the gospel, but it will save us from guilt or fear. Guilt, thinking that we have not measured up, or fear, thinking that we can't measure up when we understand the gospel clearly. Thank you for the few extra minutes. Let's pray again. Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to understand this gospel interplay. Help us not to create division or be argumentative where argument and division need not come in. Help us to be wise, to be careful, to be clear. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.